Good morning. Please take your copy of the scriptures and open them to Revelation chapter 20. We have two chapters left after this, and they are exciting chapters and more pleasant chapters than the ones we've been in in the middle here of our, our journey through Revelation. Continue to pray for the Israel group as they are traveling. I heard that they're going to be at the Dead Sea, I believe, today. They may even be there at this very moment. I'm not sure. Continue to pray for their safety. Revelation chapter 20. We finally get to one of, if not the saddest text in all of Revelation and probably in all of Scripture, and yet is one of the most important texts for us to consider because it's the very reason why we gather here today as Christians. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse... 11. We read these words. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. You have set before us in your word a very dreadful and terrible reality, Lord. That your mercy that you have shown to sinful humanity over the course of the thousand years that we have existed by your providential hand will not be infinite in the sense that there will be a day when no more mercy will be shown. And it is a dreadful day. But you are, even now, Lord, extending mercy to the undeserving, And you have tasked your people, your bride, the church, to proclaim with boldness and fervency the message of mercy that is found in the gospel. And as we, your church, gather today on this, the Lord's Day, to reflect on this very, very somber text, very, very somber reality, that we would first of all be grateful for the mercy we have received in Christ. And second, that we would have a passion and a concern for lost souls, souls who are rebels, but who have the opportunity to repent. And would you motivate us today, Lord, to be bold proclaimers of that gospel message because of this text. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. When some people look at Christianity, I think one of the things that turns them off to it is the very concept of hell. And there are some people who mischaracterize, I believe, Christianity by suggesting that all it is is filled with a bunch of prudes who only think about how everybody else is terrible and they are wonderful, and how everybody else is damned to eternal hell while the rest of us are totally righteous and holy and more pure than thou art, as the case may be. And perhaps there are some Christians who, to our shame, have that attitude, but I don't think that that really is the problem. I think the problem is that unbelievers don't want to believe this message. They don't want to believe anything that this book has to say. And so anything they can think of that they can ridicule it for, that they can ridicule us for, they do. 
they have plenty of ammunition in their minds of reasons for why they should never believe this book. And it ranges everything from this book is filled with inconsistencies to this book is filled with things that I just can't imagine a loving God doing. How could a loving God take the people of Israel into a foreign land that was not theirs and then command those Israelites to wipe out every person, not just the men of the land, but to wipe out the women and the children and all the animals? How could a loving God do that? In fact, some of them even go so far as to suggest that there are two gods in the Bible. On the one hand, in the Old Testament, you have a God of wrath and anger, and he seems to be mad all the time. And then you have the New Testament God, whom Jesus taught and talked about, the God of peace and love and acceptance. And yet when they come to texts of Scripture that talk about the wrath of God, they want to try to explain it away. Because in their minds, there's no possible way that a loving God could send people to hell. It's not possible. And even today, there are people who are pastoring churches who are trying to espouse the idea that there is no such thing as hell. In fact, hell is just a swear word, or hell is, is the worst things that happen to us here on earth, but hell is not an actual real place. One such person in our day, a very well-known, influential man, his name is Rob Bell, pastors a megachurch. And he's written many books. In fact, he was listed in one uh, magazine as one of America's top 100 most influential people. And several years ago, he wrote a book entitled Love Wins. And at the beginning of this book, he recounts this story that I'd like to read to you. Mr. Bell writes, Several years ago, we had an art show at our church. I had been giving a series of teachings on peacemaking, and we invited artists to display their paintings, poems, and sculptures that reflected their understanding of what it means to be a peacemaker. One woman included in her work a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, which a number of people found quite compelling but not everyone. Someone attached a piece of paper to it. On the piece of paper was written, reality check, he's in hell. Really? Gandhi's in hell? He is? We have confirmation of this? Somebody knows this without a doubt? And that somebody decided to take on the responsibility of letting the rest of us know? Of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place and every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? For Mr. Bell, it's unthinkable that God could send a single soul into eternal torment. He can't fathom a God who would do that. In fact, in his mind, if God is a God of love then it's not possible for him to send anybody to hell because sending somebody into torment, sending somebody into hell, isn't a loving thing to do. So he can't be doing that. And over the course of the rest of this book, Mr. Bell attempts to explain away all of the biblical texts and all of the orthodox understandings of hell. And this is nothing new. People have been doing this for centuries, trying to explain away the parts of the Bible they don't want to believe. In fact, when it comes specifically to the concept of hell, there are lots of views that have been, been espoused, and here are some of the prominent ones I've listed for you. Some have said 
you know what? Everybody's going to heaven. There's no way God could send anybody to hell, so everybody's got to be going to heaven. And this concept is called universalism. It doesn't matter what you've done in life. God universally loves everybody, and universally, at some point and in some way, everyone is going to make it to heaven to be with God. And many of these people suggest that there isn't just one way. Muslims are going to be in heaven. They're all searching for God. In fact, particularly with universalism, one of the things they teach is that everybody is searching for the divine. They're searching for the divine. And so some Muslims are looking at a divine, and some Christians are looking at a divine, and some Stoics are looking at a divine, and some Buddhists are looking at a divine. They all don't realize they're all looking at the same one. They just call him different things. Even people who are atheists, they say, people who are atheists don't realize that they too are looking for a God. They just have chosen not to believe in the concept of a deity, but instead that God perhaps is in everything or is everything or even me. I am God. But however they try to explain it, the point is everybody gets to heaven. Everybody. That's not orthodox whatsoever. There are others, though, who say, all right, well, we know the Bible says that there's hell. We know that the Bible says that people will be going to hell. But does the Bible ever actually say that hell is torment forever? So they suggest something different. They suggest something called annihilationism, where basically God does send people to hell, but he doesn't send them there forever. Essentially, what's going to happen is God sends them there. They endure the torment for their sins for a season, and then at some point they just cease to exist. They are no more. They can't explain, they can't do anything to explain how the Bible talks about forever and ever other than that it can't mean that. Some people say that hell isn't actually torment. The only thing hell is is it's like death. It's separation from God. That all it is is you won't get to be with God. Christians, they will get to spend eternity with God. And people who are in hell, they won't be in fire and torment. But they will be enduring the thought of eternal loneliness. Where they were created to have a relationship with God. But instead, they'll be alone. They won't be with him. It is a spiritual punishment. And other people try to suggest that hell is simply a metaphor for what we're going through in this life right now. You've heard people say, my life is a living hell. And that's to them the worst they can think of. But regardless of what the world feels about this, it doesn't matter. We as Christians cannot take our theology from what the world thinks. We must go and see what God says about hell. And you know what is really interesting is God talks more about hell than heaven. Why would he do that? That doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. It doesn't seem like a loving God who would send people to hell. And I think this is where the problem is. This is where our problem is. As R.C. Sproul once said, the greatest weakness in the church today is that we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. You see, any person who wants to suggest that hell is not real, or any person who wants to suggest that, that God could not send people to hell because a loving God would never do that, is somebody who fundamentally does not understand who God is. And they most certainly don't understand who they are. If we want to understand who God is, then one of the most interesting questions we will ask is not how could a loving God send anybody to hell, but how could a merciful God spare anybody from it? Because we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve the kindness of God. And yet in mercy, God has given to us a message that all those who embrace by faith will not only escape the judgment of God, because Jesus took it for them, but will also once again enjoy the presence of God forever.
So while this text we read today is terrible and dreadful, it is an important text because it's the very reason we are here today. We as humans have violated the law of God and by all accounts deserve the wrath of God. But God has given to us mercy. And so we gather here on this Lord's Day because of the gospel of Jesus Christ to rejoice in the fact that we will not face that judgment because Jesus faced it for us. And that if anybody in this room has yet to embrace the gospel, this text is meant to serve as a warning to you. You may not want to believe it, you may not like it, but the reality is, is God doesn't care about what you like or what you think about it. God is mercifully warning you of your doom and your peril. And I think the thing we need to take away from this text as Christians is that we can rejoice that Jesus took the wrath of God for us, but that we must appeal to others to flee the wrath to come and embrace the one who can enter you into the Lamb's book of life. There are three aspects of this judgment we're going to look at this morning, briefly. And the first one is the scope of the judgment. Who will be at this judgment seat? Will it just be some? Will some sinners manage to escape? Will some be able to hide and flee to the mountains and hide in the caves and in the hills away from the wrath of God? Will some people miss the Almighty's gaze? John begins by saying, I saw. This is not something that he's thinking up in his mind. He's saying, I saw with my eyes. And what does he see but a great white throne? Anytime you think of a throne, you should be asking, who is sitting on it? The one who's sitting on it in this case is the almighty judge of all. He's already banished the Antichrist and his false prophet into hell. He has already defeated Satan and his myriads of armies who surrounded the camps of the saints that we looked at last time. He's banished them. And now there comes this resurrection. And as John watches the preparation for this courtroom scene, the first thing he notices is not the people, the defendants, but he notices the throne. And he says it's a great throne. It's a large throne. And it's white. I believe that this is symbolizing not only his authority, but that this is symbolizing his purity. God is not a capricious judge. Some people want to look at life and the things that happen in life and suggest, how could a loving God do this? Or how could God love that? When 9-11 happened, one of the questions people were asking over and over again is, how could God let that happen? Because somehow, when good things are happening in our life, we take the credit for it, but when something bad happens, the world immediately recognizes that there's no such thing as an atheist, that somehow God had something to do with this. How could God let 9-11 happen? How could God let so-and-so have cancer? How could God let this happen? Now God has the opportunity to sit upon his judgment throne and look at all of those people who took for granted his mercy, the very breath they had for their years of life upon this earth. Each breath was ordained by God. Each breath was given by God. They are not self-existent. None of us in this room birthed ourselves. None of us went from nothing into deciding, hmm, I think I'm going to actually become something now. All of us were given our life by the Creator. All of us owe our sustenance. The fact that you're still alive right now, breathing, sitting in this room, is not because of you. It's because of God. And the worst pagan in our society, the person who is living a debauched lifestyle, shaking his fist in the face of God, assuming that everything in his life is because of him and that he is the one who is sustaining himself, and the very God that he either denounces or the very God he claims doesn't exist, is the very one giving him his next breath. What had God told Adam and Eve before they fell? in the garden, when he had created these creatures, Adam and Eve, what had God told them? Don't eat. You can eat of everything else, but of this one tree, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not you might die. Not, well, I'll give you a second chance. You will die. And what happens? Eve is deceived by the serpent. 
Adam takes from his wife the fruit that she ate, and he also eats. And instead of dying in that moment, God gives them their next breath. Every single one of us owes our being, our moving, our ability to do anything to the sovereign God. And any time we refuse to acknowledge him as the source of our life and our being, we have failed to acknowledge him for who he is. One day, we will all pass death's door. And for those who have refused to acknowledge God and for those who have refused to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that they will face one day is a great white throne. But John also talks about how he sees who is on the throne. He says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. He can't even describe the words of what it's like to see the righteous judge of all, the Holy One of Israel. But he does say this, before the face of that judge, everything in heaven and everything on earth is running away because they can't stand the thought of his piercing gaze seeing them for who they are. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. When they sinned against God, what was the first thing they did? They ate of the fruit, and what does the scripture say? But that they immediately knew that they were naked, and what did they do? They sewed fig leaves, and then what did they do? They went and hid because they heard God walking in the cool of the day, and what before had been so sweet and pleasant to them was now filling them with absolute terror. And ever since that moment, humans have been running and hiding from God. Why are we wearing clothes today? Because it's a shameful thing not to wear clothes, but it's also a symbol. It's meant to remind us that we are hiding from God. We're hiding from God. Earth and heaven and everything in it wants to hide from God. Even the person who claims there is no God, I don't believe there's a God, there's no future judgment. And some people have the audacity to say, when I stand before a God, I'm going to say, why did you do this? But that's not the reality. The reality is that everybody who sees the righteous judge of all is going to hide. You know why? Because they know he's the judge and they know they do not deserve to be in his presence. In fact, that is exactly the way Isaiah felt when he was in the presence of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Wow, this is awesome. We need to get more people and sell tickets to see this. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I'm coming apart because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The first thing that gets into the mind of Isaiah when he sees the Holy One sitting on the throne is not, wow, I wish that, that I could have this Kodak moment saved and I had my camera with me. The first experience Isaiah has is the reality of his sinfulness and the reality of his humanness because he says, not only am I a sinner, but he says, I dwell amongst a people of sinners. None of us deserve to be in this, the presence of this Holy One and when he says, I am undone, that's literally the idea of I am coming apart. 
were it not for the mercy of God to preserve Isaiah, Isaiah understood that he would just disintegrate into the presence of God. Because he cannot be in the holy presence of God. When he sees these angels crying back and forth, holy, 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 he realizes that he is not. And later on in that text, an angel comes with a burning hot coal and touches it upon his lips. And he says, now you are purged. And it was a symbolism for the fact that Isaiah could not purge himself. None of us can somehow reform our life and then say, all right, God, I cleaned everything up. Can I go in heaven now? None of us can say that. Just as Isaiah had to have the mercy of God extended to him and had to have his wickedness washed away by God, not himself, so must we, in order to be in the presence of God, washed in the righteousness of somebody else. Because the righteous judge of all will not permit sin in his presence. And the judge who sits on the throne, he sees all. We have sought to veil ourselves from him because none of us can, can stand the thought that God should see us in our sin. None of us. And some people throughout human history have thought that they could. They thought if we could just hide ourselves from the Holy One, Or some of them have said, I just won't even think about God. In fact, the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But that's what humans have done to try to explain away what is uncomfortable for them. And what is uncomfortable for us is the thought of a holy one, a separate one, a pure one. We can't imagine that. And you might be in this room thinking the exact same thing, that somehow you can escape that somehow the gaze of the sovereign God of all will miss you. He won't notice you. In fact, when we look at our sin, what often are we doing but not realizing or thinking about the fact that the sovereign one, the judge of all, the holy one of Israel, is viewing that very thing that we are doing. But we hope he isn't. We hope somehow he winks or that he took a cat nap and won't notice. But there will be a day where all will be revealed. And though the heavens flee away from the face of this judge, and though the earth and everything in it and everything underneath it flee from the face of this one, what does John say? There's found no place for them. You won't be able to hide. You won't be able to run away. In fact, as we get now to the recipients of the judgment, we find that they are in verse 12 described as the dead. Well, that can't just mean the dead dead like anybody dead because all Christians die too. The apostles have died. The prophets have died. Moses has died. It can't be a reference to just anybody who has died. This dead has to be describing something else, and I believe this dead is describing people who are a part of the realm of the spiritually dead. They do not have the life that Jesus has promised to those who believe upon him. These are the people who are spiritually dead, and John says, I saw them small and great. He's not saying, I saw short people and tall people. He's saying, I saw the greatest in the land, kings, and princes, and queens, and presidents. And I saw the small, the insignificant in society, the people who were not known, who probably lived in obscurity and died in obscurity. I saw all of them, from the greatest to the least in society and all throughout human history. All of them were standing before the throne of God. They stand before him like defendants in a court case. They stand before his judgment bar, and it's almost as if there is this gate right here, and they're holding on to the gate and looking into the face of the one who created them, the one who told them, you must believe the gospel. And they have no defense to give. None. Some of them might say, you didn't tell me. 
Where were the people who were the missionaries? Where were the preachers? Why didn't that Christian at my workplace mention anything about the gospel? Nobody told me. And God will look at them and he will say, you saw the nature around you. The heavens were declaring my name to you. You had a conscience, a moral conscience that told you what was right and what was wrong. Where do you think that came from? You have no excuse. And there will be some, the Bible describes, who will be weeping. They'll be weeping at the thought that they chose their sin over the Savior. There will be some who were weeping because they sat in pews like these ones right here. And they heard a pastor proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And they refused it and went through their life continuing to reject it. And they'll be weeping because when they stand before that judgment bar and they see the one who had shown them mercy after mercy after mercy by giving them their next breath, by giving them a home, by giving them clothes, by giving them food, by giving them somebody who proclaimed the gospel to them. They're going to weep that they rejected all of it. But Jesus also says that those who are in hell, there are those who will be gnashing their teeth. And even as a kid, I never understood what that meant, gnashing the teeth. I always thought it was like grinding your teeth, and that is the idea. Because while some people in hell and some people standing before God will be weeping at the reality of their refusal of the gospel and their refusal to submit to and acknowledge the King of kings and Lord of lords, there will be others who will be gritting their teeth and saying, how dare you? They'll be filled with rage because they don't care about him. They don't care about his glory and his holiness and his righteousness. All they care about is themselves. And that is exactly what children of Satan do. Because Satan, after a thousand years of being in a bottomless pit, will be released from that pit. And is he remorseful one bit? No. He comes back with a fury. And he deceives as many people as he can. And as we saw last time, it describes them as the sand of the sea. And they're all coming, surrounding the saints of God and of Christ. Because Satan has no remorse for what he has done. He will still be filled with rage and hate for the one who created him. And I believe that while some people will be weeping in sorrow when they stand before God, and know that they will be sent to an eternal hell and torment forever, there will be others who will not be sorry. They will be angry at God. And they will gnash their teeth at him. And for all of eternity, they will rage at the one who had shown them so much mercy. But the one thing that these defendants will know whether they are sorrowful for their rejection of the gospel or whether they are hating God and raging against him for all eternity, neither of them can say that his judgment wasn't just. There will not be a single person standing before God at this great white throne judgment who will say, that's not a fair judgment. You got the wrong verdict. I'm not guilty. Each person at this judgment will know that the righteous judge of all will give the proper verdict and that every single one of them deserves the place that they're going. They're judged, it says, according to their works at the end of verse 12 and at the end of verse 13. And some of us might be wondering, okay, hang on, if they're judged according to their works, I thought you're saying that they have to trust Jesus. I thought they're being judged on whether or not they believe Jesus. Here is an important distinction you have to remember. God has given to us in the Old Testament a law. And all of us as humans are required to be in accordance with it. God was showing to Israel they could do nothing to keep it. 
He had all of these sacrificial systems set up, foreshadowing what was to come, but also to show them, look at how bad you actually are. No one in this room is good. None of us can say, I have perfectly kept the law of God. In fact, when Jesus had met somebody who had the audacity to say that to him, he says, all right, let's start with the first law. Here's a rich young ruler. He says, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or, or no, what is, what is the greatest commandment of all? And, and he says, you know, love the Lord your God, and you shall honor your father and mother, and you shall, you shall not steal or kill. I mean, Jesus goes through the whole, the whole Ten Commandments, and this guy has the audacity to say, I've kept it from my youth up. Ever since I was a little kid to now, I've kept that whole thing. I haven't violated it once. Jesus says, all right, let's start with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You're a rich guy. Take everything you got, sell it. Give it to the poor, and then come follow me. How does the rich man respond? It says he went away. He didn't follow Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and he says he went away. He didn't follow Jesus. And what is the other thing it says? He went away sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. He kept all of it from his youth up, and yet he can't even take the, the wealth that was given to him by God and give it away because the wealth was his God. God has given to us a law that none of us can keep. And when you look at people in this life who aren't Christians but are doing good moral things, it can be really tempting to think, well, how could God send that person to hell? That person isn't doing the worst sins you can think of. That person, in fact, is acting more Christian than some Christians I've seen. But the one difference is that even though the Christian is flawed, the Christian has the righteousness of Christ so that one day when he stands before God, God doesn't see that sinner. God sees the righteousness of his Savior. The other person who is a good moral person in life will stand before God one day at this judgment seat and God will not see the righteousness of Jesus. That person might be, in fact, someone that Jesus talked about. He was, Jesus said, there will be many in that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, hold up. I think I'm at the rock judgment here. D look at all the wonderful works I did. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out devils? Didn't I do many wonderful works? Come on, this is the wrong judgment. I'm one of your people. And Jesus says, I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, who are you? I don't know you. You're not mine. Because even though healing people and doing many wonderful works is a good thing, and it's important to make an ordered society, it doesn't save you. Because the problem is not whether or not you do sin. The problem is whether or not you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, which the Bible says you are, then you can do nothing to please God. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans the person who's in the flesh not only won't please God, he cannot. It's not possible. So anyone in this room standing here or sitting here thinking that they can do something to please God in and of themselves is deluding themselves. Because though you may live a life that's as squeaky clean from a human perspective as possible, if you have not embraced Jesus Christ, then all of those squeaky clean acts that you've done are nothing but filthy rags in his sight. And one day when you stand before his judgment bar and you look at God, you will see all of the works you did. But it's not going to be a pile of clean rags and dirty rags and hopefully your clean rags are more than your dirty ones. It's going to be one gigantic pile of filthy rags. And you will know that the only reason that's the case is because you didn't trust in the one who could give you righteousness and give you the ability to have clean rags before him. Books are opened, and everything that they have done is written down and reviewed, and judgment after judgment is going to be cast, but there's one other book that will be opened, 
and he describes it as the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things written in those book, books according to their works. And John continues in verse 13 to say, look, if anybody thinks that they can escape death, people who have died in the sea, people who have died and, and their body has decayed over thousands of years and now we don't even know, like their body really doesn't exist, they've returned to dust like the Bible talks about. They all are delivered up before the judgment seat of God and they are judged according to their works. And here is the reality that in this courtroom, the recipients of this judgment are all guilty. Because that's what this judgment is about. This judgment is about whether or not you are a follower of God. And no one will have a reason to deny that his verdict to them is just. But what about the finality of this judgment? We see that God is the judge. We see who the recipients are. But how sure is this judgment In verse 14, we read that the death and hell were cast into this final resting place described as the lake of fire. And John says, this is the second death. You want to be blessed to be part of the first resurrection, but you do not want to be a part of the second death. Because that means there's no return. There's no more chance. No more. And verse 15, whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the saddest, most sobering verse, I think, in all of the Bible. Because everybody in this room still has a chance. But the people described at this judgment don't. It's done. Their fate is sealed. They chose what they wanted. In fact, there is a quote that I read that was so powerful and so moving to me that I want to read it to you. It's by a man named J.I. Packer, and he wrote, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Those in hell will realize that they sentenced themselves to it by loving darkness rather than light, choosing not to have their creator as their Lord, preferring self-indulgent sin to self-denying righteousness, those who are in hell will know not only that for their doings they deserve it, but also that in their hearts they chose it. They chose that in this life. God showed mercy. God gave them the opportunity to hear the gospel, and they refused it, which means they chose judgment. There is coming a judgment day. And God will be righteous and holy and pure in that judgment. And if any of us in this room will be honest with ourselves, every single person in this room knows they deserve it. I don't deserve to be standing up here proclaiming this message to you. I deserve to experience the just wrath of God. You don't deserve to sit in this pew and hear about the mercy of God. You deserve the wrath of God. That's what we deserve because that's what we've chosen. But that's not the story of redemption, and that is not what God wanted. God said, I want to have a relationship with my creatures, and when they rebelled against him, he could have just wiped out Adam and Eve. He could have wiped out all of his creation. He said, let's start over again. But he didn't. Not only did he spare the lives of Adam and Eve for quite some time, but he gave them a promise that there was going to be a descendant, a seed of the woman, who one day would crush the serpent's head. And we know that that descendant was Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ at Golgotha, in the Holy Land of Israel, where we have people right now, lived the righteous life that God demands and that none of us can keep. And that he, as, an, as a person who is pure and holy, was wrongly convicted of crimes he did not commit, 
was horribly beaten, had his beard plucked out, had crowns of thorns rammed on top of his head, endured the mocking and the shame and the scorn of the people around him, and uttered not a word, but silently bore his cross as far as he could until his weary body could not anymore, and they had to compel compel another person to carry the cross the rest of the way, and he went to this place called Golgotha, where he was crucified, him in the middle, and one malefactor on either side. And there he endured the wrath of God. Where at one point, hanging in agony, where he has to push up because otherwise he would be asphyxiated because of the way the the Romans had him tied onto that cross and nailed onto that cross. In order for him to breathe, he had to push up on the nails that were in his feet and on the block underneath his feet. And in that moment, he pushed up and he cried out words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God in that moment had poured out his wrath on Jesus. The eternal wrath that we deserve. And when Jesus gave up his spirit, there was darkness all around. It was in the middle of the day, but it was almost pitch black. It was almost like it was night. Because this was an act of injustice. In the sense that Jesus did not deserve that. We did. But Jesus did it willingly. He did it because this was part of the plan of God. Where they planned, and Romans says, and Acts talks about the fact that this was foreordained by God, that these people should crucify him on the cross, and that three days later he should rise from the dead so that you don't have to go to this day so that he could endure that suffering, that wrath. He could endure that dreadful day for you. And all he calls you to do is to give up your life. Believe in his death and resurrection for you and to embrace him. Is the only way to be saved. It's the only way. There is no other way. Muslims are not going to heaven unless they trust in Christ. Buddhists are not going to heaven unless they trust in Christ. Atheists are not going to heaven unless they trust in Christ. And Rob Bell will not go to heaven unless he trusts in Christ. And you will not go to heaven unless you trust in Christ. You see, this is your moment. The passage that Brad read earlier is that we as Christians are called to be ambassadors, and here's our plea. Be reconciled to God. Why wait? When Revelation 20, 11 through 15 happens, it's too late. And the people who will be weeping at that judgment seat and weeping in the eternal flames of the lake of fire will be weeping because they know it's too late. But it's not too late for you. You have the chance to embrace it today, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and escape the wrath to come. No one will escape the judgment of the Almighty. If, If anyone in this room decides, I don't believe in hell, I don't believe in the gospel, I don't believe in Christianity, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any of this, then the reality is, is you are sealing your fate. And you won't escape. You can try to flood out the thoughts of God, you can try to flood out the thoughts of the gospel, you can try to flood out the thoughts of eternal judgment, but the reality is, is you can only flood them out until you take your last breath. Because when you open your eyes you will realize that everything you wished was a fantasy wasn't. The only thing was a fantasy was what you had thought in your mind. No one will escape that judgment one day, but here is my plea to you. You can right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to find out that this is true. You can know that not only is God holy and just, but that he is merciful 
And one of the things that I think we can embrace today as Christians and and tell people is that following Jesus is the sweetest experience. There's no greater joy than having the joy of Christ. There's no greater peace than having peace with God. There's no greater love than knowing the love of God for you that you can then show to other people. The world can try to manufacture all that stuff, but the reality is is the truest, greatest expression of all of those virtues can only be found in Jesus Christ. And the only truest experience of them can be found by those who have been found by Jesus Christ. So those of you in this room who are wondering whether or not this is true, I am begging you, don't wait until this day to find out. Trust Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. And those of us in this room who have experienced the forgiveness of God, who have tasted of the sweetness of Christ, who know true, lasting joy, peace, and love, I hope that our hearts will be stirred from this text to proclaim the message that will save people who now have an opportunity to respond and repent before it's too late. I hope that you will go to your workplace with a desire to see your coworkers saved, that you'll go to your family members who don't know the Lord, and that you'll go to them and proclaim to them the only message that they need to hear that will save them from their sins. And I hope that we as parents will do everything we can to be good stewards of the gospel with our children because we have an opportunity to influence them too. So sinner, flee from the wrath to come and embrace the one who can enter you into the Lamb's book of life. And Christian, rejoice that your Redeemer endured the wrath of God for you and proclaim the message to the lost world, the only message that will save their souls. Lord, this text is so serious. And I'm excited for the future texts in Revelation where we see that there's no more curse, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sadness, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more hardship. But while we endure this time now, We do endure those things. And yet, in your mercy, you give to us our next breath. You clothe us. You feed us. You've given us possessions. We are very blessed. But we can take those for granted. And I pray for any soul in this room who has yet to embrace Jesus that they would not wait. They would embrace him today and know your smile, and know that in Christ, they can enjoy your presence forever. And Lord, I pray for us Christians that this text would move us to proclaim the truth boldly, without fear, because it is the message of God to salvation to all who believe. Thank you for your mercy, and may you grant mercy to those in this room and those we come in contact with. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.